0: This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of Northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
1: This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Tricia Johnson. Counterterrorism, domestic election integrity, nuclear weapons. The United States National Security Advisor protects American interests around the globe and addresses the most crucial challenges of our time. Ambassador Robert O'Brien is President Trump's National Security
2: Advisor. The idea of leading from behind in strategic patience is something that's been cast aside by this administration, uh, and we think the results are pretty significant. Ambassador Robert
1: O'Brien joined Stephen Hadley, former National Security Advisor for George W. Bush. They discussed critical issues, including Washington's response to Chinese and Russian rising global influence, America's future role in the Middle East, and the growing North Korean nuclear threat. Here's O'Brien with an overview of the Trump administration's work around the world so far.
2: Four years ago, the president was elected, and he had a very different view of uh, foreign policy, peace and prosperity. And what could be achieved for the American people, uh, and what President Trump does is he puts the needs of the American people first, uh, their values, their safety, their rights, and he also believes, like Ronald Reagan did, uh, that that America is uh, best served when we have a peace through strength uh, foreign policy and national security policy. And over the past four years, the president has implemented that vision with purpose. Uh, we believe, and uh, uh, especially since uh, since I've been here, that the Administration deals with the world as it is uh, and not as we wish it to be and we don't turn a blind eye to uh, the conduct of our adversaries or competitors and we think because of that. uh, The world is a more peaceful place and we can demonstrate that I think with with some of the accomplishments that have taken place during the president's time in office. The first is when uh, the president took office, there was a caliphate spanning the Levant in Syria and Iraq, the size of Great Britain and that caliphate is gone. Uh, Its founder, uh, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as well as the leaders of Al-Qaeda in the Yemen Peninsula and in North Africa have been removed from the battlefield. Over 50 American hostages and detainees held captive in 22 countries have been brought home. NAFTA has been replaced with a much improved USMCA, and working with El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, the presence reduced undocumented immigration from the region by about 85%. Uh, we believe burden sharing with our allies is key. And and so one of the, the first things I was able to do as uh, national security advisor uh, last December was go to the NATO summit. And at that summit, we secured commitments from our allies over a 10 year period to increase their defense spending by $400 billion. Now that was pre-COVID, so we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, but we believe the world's safer in and and Western Europe and, and the West is safer because of that additional defense spending by our, our NATO allies. Uh, we've ended defense sequestration and rebuilt the, the U.S. military. Uh, the president established the Space Force, uh, which is the first new branch of the U.S. military in 70 years, and it's captured the imagination of uh, of our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines. And we're we're seeing a number of uh, of young men and women who are are looking to cross commission and and uh, and join the Space Force. Uh, so it's exciting. One of the things that's not talked about a lot is we're working to expand our relationship with the two of the, the great populist democracies that will be important to us going forward, and that's India and Brazil. Uh, I actually head to Brazil uh, to meet with President Bolsonaro on Sunday. Uh, we had a tremendous trip to India where the president was well-received just prior to uh, the, the real outbreak of COVID in in the United States. And we think that th- those relationships as we move forward uh, are going to be critical. Uh, in Indo-Pacific, we try to revitalize our uh, alliances with our treaty allies, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, the Philippines, and Thailand uh, on the counterterrorism front, but also on maritime security in the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan Strait, uh, and working with them on mineral issues. Uh, in Afghanistan, after 20 year almost 20 years of war, 19 years of war, we signed a peace agreement with the Taliban. And uh, you know, one of the that, that that was that came under some criticism, but we've had a couple of of results of that peace agreement with the Taliban. Number one. Since, since it was signed, I believe on February 29th of this year, we have not had a combat death in Afghanistan. We've, had some, we've lost some soldiers and sailors in, uh, in accidents, but we haven't had a combat death in Afghanistan since that time. We haven't had to go to Dover for a dignified transfer since that time. We're also seeing inter-Afghan negotiations that are taking place uh, in Doha right now. and uh, you know, they're, they're tough negotiations. It's going to be hard sledding for both the government and, and the Taliban, but uh, we're there to support them. The President has set a timeline for troop withdrawal. We're going to be down to under 5,000 troops uh, within the next month or so. And, and in early, uh, the early part of next year, we're going to be down to 2,500 troops. Uh, and it has been suggested by some that that's speculation. Uh, I, can, uh, I can guarantee you that's the plan of the President of the United States. It's not speculation. That's the order of the Commander-in-Chief. Uh, the DOD is working on those plans, and Secretary Asper is, uh, is fully uh, on board and implementing them. Uh, we've had a maximum pressure campaign on Iran, and that's brought the regime economically to its knees. And uh, what we've done is we've cut off massive amounts of funding going to the Houthis, going to Hezbollah, going to Hamas, going to the Assad regime, and going to uh, Khatib, Hezbollah, and the other uh, paramilitary groups in Iran in, in Iraq uh, because of the uh, of the pressure that we put on, on Iran. And that choking off of their ability to, to create problems uh, throughout the region uh, it helped bring us to really a, an America, a, a true American breakthrough uh, in the Middle East where we have uh, countries embracing a better future based on shared interests and values. So last month, <clears throat> the president received a, a historic peace agreement with the UAE, Bahrain, and Israel, the Abraham Accords. And uh, I was fortunate to be on that first commercial flight from uh, uh, Ben Gurion Airport to Abu Dhabi International. Uh, to to begin what we believe is gonna be a warm peace as opposed to a cold peace between uh, the Gulf Arabs and Israel. Uh, So we made important progress as well in the Balkans on another intractable uh, conflict, uh, normalizing economic relations between Serbia and Kosovo. Again, it was another area that folks said it couldn't be done, it had been worked on for 30 years. And as you may have seen, both the Kosovars and the Serbians are, are implementing those normalization agreements uh the the serbian's just reopened uh, a major border and customs checkpoint uh, uh on the border within the past week so th- those are some of the things that we've we've seen some of the accomplishments that we've seen happen uh, under the administration uh, we've also taken the position that we're going to protect american sovereignty so the president just is not going to stay involved in treaties where one side violates the treaty uh, for example the russians with the inf for the open skies treaty but we abide by it uh, We're not going to stay in international organizations that are corrupt or that are totally controlled by the uh the chinese if we can't reform them we'll try and reform them first but we're not going to stay involved in the human rights council or the who uh where they're where they're fully corrupt so i I think maybe the the whole point of of this is uh uh the idea of leading from behind and strategic patience is something that's been been cast aside by this administration uh, and we think the uh, uh the results are pretty significant I'll make one quick comment by, uh, about China, because I think we'll we'll circle back when we talk with Stephen and, and give him a chance to to jump in here. But uh, I think the president has been the first he's talked He talked about this as a private citizen. He's led uh, as president, but I think he's the first president that's recognized the conventional wisdom that all of us probably bought into for so many years that China uh, over time would liberalize first economically and then politically. Uh, was wrong. I mean, we've all watched as we've turned a blind eye to Chinese malign behavior, whether internally or externally, uh, that China's become more nationalistic, more mercantilistic, more authoritarian, and more committed to Marxism-Leninism Marxism, over time. Uh, and uh, and now the free world is starting to to, to follow our example of, of standing up to China, whether it's technology theft, unfair trade practices, uh, uh, intellectual property theft, uh, theft of private data, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, we, we did come up with a, a phase one trade deal, which we thought was a, a terrific deal at the time. Unfortunately, it's been a little overtaken by events with COVID, uh, but we think we got that deal because the president was willing to, to put uh, uh, strong tariffs on the, uh, on the Chinese. And we can talk, talk more, and I'm sure Stephen will have some more uh, thoughts on China. But uh, just as a summary, I think uh, the president's uh, approach of, of putting America first, but not America alone uh, working with our allies, encouraging them to share a, a, a bigger share of the burden, uh, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan or or in Western Europe, ha- has led to uh, a number of successes, uh, very serious successes that have been overlooked um, by our friends in the media and and, and sometimes even in our uh, our colleagues among the think tank world. So uh, we're we're very very pleased with the president's uh, uh, agenda. Uh, we think it's something he'll take into the second term. You know, it's going to be a tough election. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, but but we think we've uh, we think over the past four years we 've restored uh, uh a, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of uh, of authority to American foreign policy that was missing at the time that the president came into uh, came into office so with that i could problem with being on that, turning the the microphone over to a lawyer you could end up with a a, a forty five minute filibuster so with that i'll uh, i 'll turn it over to my, my good friend stephen and 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 one of the things, stephen I just want to say at the outset I've i 've been so appreciative of your wisdom and counsel and, uh, and your generosity with your time since I've been in this, uh, this position. Uh, you really set a standard for all of us who've come after you. So uh, thank you for that, and, uh, and thank you for joining me this morning.
3: Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much. Thanks for your kind words. Thank you for your statement. Uh, it's a, a, a good, concise summary of what the president has accomplished. I would like to focus on what would happen uh, under a second Trump administration. And I want to follow up on some of the items you identified. Let's start, if we can, with China. I think it is fair to say that the administration has awakened both elite opinion and popular opinion within the United States to the challenge presented by China. And many would agree that you have usefully begun a process of pushing back against aggressive Chinese policies, whether economic, military, or diplomatic. A question for you would be this. What, in your view, does the future hold for US-China relations? What kind of relationship should we be seeking with China? Are we strategic competitors? Are we adversaries? Are we even enemies? How would you characterize it? And what's your vision about what we should try to achieve in this relationship going forward?
2: So, so thanks, Stephen. That's, and that's the, look, that's the biggest question that, that any of us are going to face, whether it's uh, this administration or, or another administration uh, uh, come next year. Uh, I, I believe, and I've written about this for years, and, and talked about it for years, that China's truly the challenge. <clears throat> excuse me, to the United States for for our generation. What the president said, and I agree with him, is we'd like to have great relations with China. Uh, China is an amazing country. They're hardworking. They're, uh, they're 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 smart. They're diligent. They've been uh, you know so- somewhat aligned with the United States for many many years. We fought in the same uh, same side in World War II, uh, and. and We've had hundreds of thousands of Chinese come through the United States to be educated here. We've got lots of Americans who are doing business and, and who've lived in China or spent time in China. So, so we'd like to have a good relationship with China. Uh, unfortunately, what's happened over the past 30 or 40 years is that instead of having, as the Chinese like to describe it, a win-win relationship where both sides win, we've really had a win-lose relationship where, where China has won and we've lost. And uh, so we've got to crack down on intellectual property theft, for example. I mean, Christopher Ray, our director of the CIA, said that the intellectual property theft of China over the past several decades has been the greatest wealth transfer in human history. We've gotta stop that. And we've gotta do it from our side and the FBI is opening a new counter espionage uh, investigation on China every 10 hours. And and we have to get smarter, we have to harden ourselves, we have to make it harder for the Chinese to to steal our technology, to steal our intellectual property. Uh, We've done that in, in part through law enforcement, in part by our visa restrictions uh, you know, we've you know we've learned that the Chinese were sending literally thousands of PLA officers to American universities, uh, you know, under the guise of being students, where they could come to the universities and 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 steal our technology and 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 get educated and take take our uh, our know-how back and rebuild the uh, the Chinese military, and, and so that has to stop. And we're putting it we're putting it into it. I mean, I think at one point we probably had more Chinese. PLA officers in, uh, in STEM graduate programs here in the US than we had US military officers in, in graduate programs here. That's just not, you know, that, that, that's not smart. And, and so, so look, there, there's a lot that we have to do on our side. I think what the president did with the tariffs is he finally woke up uh, the Chinese that this, this endless $500 billion a year trade deficit where they hollow out our manufacturing jobs, where they hollow out our, our, our supply chains and, and, and take it all back to China that that's ending. Uh, I think we have to reshore and nearshore uh, our critical infrastructure, whether it 's healthcare, pharmaceuticals uh, chip making uh, rare earths for sure and that 's something we 've had a lot of success on over the past four years is is establishing alternate supply lines for for rare earths so so there 's a lot that we need to do to protect ourselves going forward. We just haven 't you know handled the relationship well and and we have to understand that that at a minimum they 're strategic competitors, maybe they 're adversaries I hope they 're not enemies. Although I, I understand that Xi Jinping was telling his his troops this morning to prepare for war, uh, you know, a war with China is not a a good thing. I I've always believed the best way to to deter a war with China is is through strength. And so, if we rebuild the navy the way the president has set out to do, and, and we get a 355 ship navy, if we really do have a, a pivot to the Pacific, and 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 we start pulling some of our troops out of of places like uh, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and putting them in places like Hawaii and Guam and uh, the Aleutians and Palau and and uh, American Samoa and the second island chain. Uh, uh, th- those are all things we can do, I think, to deter the Chinese from from believing that they can overwhelm us. But they're they're in kind of a heady role right now. They're they, they've they've got a uh, a hot hot little situation with India on the line of actual control in the Himalayas. Uh, they're bullying Taiwan again. They've taken over Hong Kong, uh, lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, uh, you know, Tibet remains out there. There there's you know. Uh, if not a genocide, something close to it going on in, in Xinjiang. So uh the Chinese are very, very assertive, very aggressive now. They've taken you know, they've they've asserted rights over the entire South China Sea, like it's Lake Tahoe or something, but uh in, next to Beijing and and you know they've taken a vast swath of Pacific that they claim they own. So so you know they are they're very aggressive. They're very assertive uh you know across all domains and cyber and space. And so we're gonna have to stand up to them. But I, I, I honestly believe that if we, if we show strength and if we deter them, that's the best way to avoid war with China. And, and on the trade front, I think we showed with the phase one deal that if you, uh, if you show determination that you can, uh, you can end up getting a, a decent deal with the Chinese. So I'm hoping for good relations with the Chinese going forward, longer answer than you probably wanted. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of malign activity on their side and we've got we've to stand up to it.
3: Thank you for that. Let me ask you about one area of tension Are you worried about a confrontation between China and the United States over Taiwan? And is a Chinese military invasion of Taiwan, there's a lot of talk about that now, is that the most likely scenario? Or is it more likely a kind of gray zone scenarios where China combines economic, political, and military pressure to try to undermine and coerce Taiwan? Uh, Which is more likely? And is the United States prepared to with friends and allies to help Taiwan in the event of such kind of gray zone scenarios from China?
2: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Uh, look, I, I don't think the Chinese probably at this point uh, want or are, pro- are, are likely prepared for the, the, an amphibious uh, landing in Taiwan. I mean, they've got a massive number of missiles pointed at Taiwan, so, so they could probably annihilate Taiwan uh, in a strike. I, I don't know what they would gain from that. Uh, uh, they'd, I think, they'd lose everything they wanted to gain if they if they did that, and they'd be they'd certainly become pariahs internationally uh, for just the wanton destruction of Taiwan. I hope they wouldn't consider doing something of that nature. Uh, as far as an amphibious landing goes, and a, and a military takeover, that's pretty tough to do. I mean, you know, we're dealing with about 100 miles of of waterway, and amphibious amphibious operations are notoriously difficult. You know, even even for us, uh, you know, you go back to to you know you can go back to Napoleon, or you can go to to Nazi Germany, you know, both both had strong designs on an, a, an invasion of the UK over a 12-mile English Channel, and were deterred by uh, obviously the Royal Navy, but but also by a relatively small uh, waterway. I, I think it would be a very difficult military operation for the Chinese to conduct now. Uh, maybe 10 or 15 years from now, they'd be in a better position to do that as they they expand. I mean, they're they're involved in the biggest. Naval buildup that we've seen since Kaiser Wilhelm tried to create the Kriegsmarine created the Kriegsmarine to to challenge the Royal Navy prior to World War One. Uh, we're seeing something similar from the Chinese with with the buildup of the PLA Navy now. Uh, maybe in 10 or 15 years they'd be in better shape to do it. But but even once you get to Taiwan, there are very few landing beaches you know four or five that would be suitable. So I think it's I think it's a hard operation uh, for the Chinese to do. And and then there's always the United States and. Uh, you know, we don't comment about what our military plans are, how would we, we, we respond in that circumstance? Uh, but we have a lot of, of tools in the toolkit that could make, you know, if we got involved, that can make that a very dangerous effort for the Chinese to, to engage in. So that leads us to the second part of your question. Uh, you know, do we have a repeat of Kwame and Matsu, uh, you know, from uh, earlier days, uh, from the 50s and, and 60s? Do you see, you know, landings by the the Chinese on, on islands? and an increasing effort to isolate Taiwan diplomatically, uh, um, maybe some sort of, uh, of embargo, that sort of thing. And, and you know, we, we don't want to see that. I think that the Chinese end up looking very bad in that situation. And I think the entire free world and most of, the, you know, most of Asia and the Indo-Pacific would be repelled uh, by that sort of conduct by the Chinese. And I think the Chinese would, would do more to isolate themselves undertaking that sort of action against Taiwan. Uh, than we could ever do in building a coalition against the Chinese, and I, I think they're they're pretty smart diplomats and and understand what would what would happen if they did so. So it, I, I'd hate to see a gray zone operation, but I but I think the Chinese are again they're 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 smart strategists and uh, they've shown with their blue water or their blue militia and they uh, they're the, equivalent of the little green men in uh, in the South China Sea that they certainly have capability and capacity to operate in the gray zone at a at a very sophisticated level. And so it's something we have to keep an eye on and monitor. You know what we told our Taiwanese friends is: knowing all this, whether there's a, an amphibious landing, a, a missile attack, a uh, a gray zone uh, uh, type operation, they really need to fortify themselves. They've upped their defense spending. I, I'm I'm told now they're they're getting closer to two percent, which would be a NATO level. They're not obviously Taiwan's not part of NATO, but that would be kind of a benchmark. And, and they probably need to go beyond that given the uh, uh, the, the buildup of of. Uh, Chinese forces, especially across the Taiwan Strait, but if if Taiwan becomes a porcupine, uh, if anyone has been on safari or spent time in Africa, lions generally don't like to eat porcupines. They can, but uh, uh, they they prefer not to. And uh, and I think Taiwan needs to 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 start looking at some asymmetric and anti-access area denial strategies of its own, and, and really fortify itself to, in a manner that would deter the Chinese uh, uh, from from any sort of uh, amphibious invasion or even a gray zone operation against them.
0: This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings but how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it, those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments. It withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true, everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
3: I want to shift to the Middle East for a minute. You pointed out that the President has reduced U.S. troop levels. He's done so fairly dramatically in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq. I want to push you on that just a bit, if I might. Many would argue that some level of U.S. troop presence in these countries is critical. If there's any chance of obtaining a negotiated peace with the Taliban in Afghanistan, a post-Assad government in Syria, or an Iraqi government that is not totally under the sway of Iran. Do you agree with this assessment of the critical role of US troop presence in these countries? And how committed will a second Trump administration be to achieving these policy objectives in the Middle East?
2: So, so I think overall, what the president said and what the American people have said is, is that they'd like to come home from these countries. I mean, we're spending a tremendous amount of money, billions of dollars every month in Iraq, in, in Afghanistan. We're spending significant amounts in in Iraq uh, and Syria. Uh, we, we've got great power competition with our our primary uh, competitors, adversaries, with Russia and China, and uh, and so look. Ultimately, we can It's unsustainable for us to be in these countries forever. Uh, we've been in Afghanistan for 19 years. I had one senator, a very conservative Republican from a southern state, uh, who's very sympathetic to the the uh, uh, troop presence in presence in Afghanistan. Tell me, there's not one person in my state who wants to stay in Afghanistan. So I I think what's happened is I think the American people uh, really want to bring our troops home. I think the presence, uh, as 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 touched on that. But obviously we want to do it in a way that, uh, that that assists our allies and our friends in the region so we've done a couple of things number one we've drawn down the number of our troops uh so we're either getting them home back to europe or, or to asia pacific uh where we need them number two we've really uh, uh increased the the involvement uh, of our allies uh, of nato and and so for all the criticisms of the president on his relationships with nato we have a great relationship the president has a great relationship with the end stoltenberg and 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 with our other colleagues in in Western Europe both at the NSA level, but also at the head of state and head of government level. And so, for example, in in Afghanistan, we're going to we'll end up uh, going down to 4,500 troops soon. But there are 4,500 additional NATO troops and coalition troops, Uh, not not all NATO, some are outside of NATO, Georgian troops, UAE troops and others, but uh, We'll have the same number of troops that we have there uh, supplied by the allies. That's something that we traditionally haven't had. We've had always had a coalition Mm -hmm. component but not on a one-to-one basis uh, with the U.S. Uh, the same thing is taking place in Iraq. We're not quite up to the number of, of U.S. troops uh, in Iraq, but but we have a, a very robust uh, NATO presence now in Iraq. And so we're trying to bring our troops home. We're trying to increase the, uh, the, the burden sharing with our allies, especially our NATO allies in those countries. Uh, and then third, we're watching things on, as conditions develop, and we're encouraging uh, – uh, peace negotiations. And uh, among the parties, whether it's in Afghanistan, we're, we're you know, trying to uh, to do what we can uh, on the peace front in the Middle East, and we hope that those conditions will allow us to to bring everyone home. There's always going to be some sort of a, a CT uh, component to what we do in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, it, it's a little tougher to do that over the horizon, but but we have capabilities, and, and we've shown that. I think there's been a, a relentless uh, attack on al-Qaeda and on ISIS over the past four years. Uh, taking out leadership and uh, and degrading their uh, ability to conduct operations, so uh, I think there's going to be a long-term CT cooperation with with whether it's our allies in Syria, uh, uh, whether it's with the the Iraqi government, uh, the Afghan government, uh, even even in a uh, in a in a coalition government in Afghanistan. When we've had indications from our uh, adversaries in the Taliban that they'd like to see CT cooperation. Uh, uh in afghanistan i i don't think they like fighting isis-k any more than uh, than we do so so i think there are some opportunities there and and i think working all of those uh those different lines will allow us to uh to reduce our presence but i you know I, as of now we, we maintain a presence in in those countries uh we think it's important but ultimately the goal is to get american troops back to the united states to the extent we can
3: let's stay in the middle east for a minute and shift to iran The administration has recently ramped up its maximum pressure campaign against Iran. What are the prospects, in your view, for some kind of negotiations with Iran in a second Trump administration? What would be the range of subjects the administration would like to negotiate on? And where would U.S. policy go if Iran refuses to negotiate in a second Trump administration?
2: Uh, so again, great questions. I, a, I think it's going to be very difficult for the Iranians to refuse to negotiate. Right now, they're they're waiting us out. Uh, we're being told that by uh, by even you know, countries that are that are friendly with Iran, uh, and and even countries that are that aren't friendly but maintain diplomatic relations. Uh, uh, the Iranians are waiting to see what happens on election day. There's uh, it's, it's been reported. I'm not breaking news here that that Iran would would very much prefer uh, a different administration. They'd like to go back to the JCPOA day, JCPOA days. Uh, those were Kind of halcyon days for the for the Islamic Republic, and uh, uh, we won't go there if the president's reelected. So we'll have to wait and see what happens on the election. But uh, I do think if the president's reelected, the economic pain that's been inflicted on Iran right now uh, is grave. Uh, I don't think they'll be able to sustain it much longer. Uh, but you know, look, like you never know with with sanctions. I mean, countries can be resilient if they're willing to to shoot protesters in the street and use the full strength of their their internal security forces, which Iran has shown its, its ability to do. Uh, but, but we think that the economic pressure is so great that after the election, you know, they, they can hang in there for another month or two. We don't think they can hang in there uh, for another four years. So I think that they're gonna to come to the table. And, and look, at the table, we need to see a couple of things. We need to see a dismantling of their nuclear program, which didn't happen under JCPOA. Uh, it, it was there, they were still spinning centrifuges, and now, they've, now they're spending more once, once we got out. We have to get rid of that program, uh, a peaceful civilian uh, program uh, with, with parameters on, and, and guidelines around it uh, is something that could be on the table, but, but this nuclear program that's held in reserve in, in bunkers under, underground, either so a, a nuclear program can be started in secret or it can be uh, rapidly uh, uh, spun up if, if Iran doesn't like the way the West is, is behaving, uh, that, that's not an option. Long-range ballistic missiles, whereby Iran can threaten Europe or even the United States, uh, that has to be off the table. And support for terrorists the region have to be off the table. Uh, but the, but what what we suggest is that you know the, the Iranian people are great people. They're, they're hardworking. They're they've got a vibrant middle class. I come from California, where you know there's a a, a massive successful, uh, very affluent Persian community, uh, Persian American community. Uh, you know, it, it, Iran has unlimited potential if if the regime would unlock it for its people, and uh, and the president said that we can make a great deal with Iran, and, and Iran could have a, a very prosperous, uh, happy future, and 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 so I, I hope that they'll come to the table and uh, and do so in a reasonable fashion.
3: Let's move to another country of nuclear uh, concern. So far, Kim Jong Un has kept his promise to President Trump that he will not test nuclear weapons or long-range ballistic missiles, but he's continued to expand his nuclear weapon and ballistic missile programs and has recently threatened to abandon his self-imposed moratorium. If he does, what would be the U.S. response? And more generally, what would be American strategy towards North Korea at this point? Is complete denuclearization of North Korea really beyond reach at this point, in your view?
2: Yeah, so so that's a, you know, uh, question of the the hour, and uh, it's a tough one. I don't want to speculate on what we would do if if Kim Jong-un changed behavior. we We do appreciate the fact that uh, that in you know since the Singapore summit, there has not been a nuclear test, there has not been a long-range ballistic missile test. Uh, there's been some positive language because of the cordial relationship that was developed between the president and, and Kim Jong-un. But at the same time, we we put on sanctions and uh, and and enforce sanctions the way no administration has in history. so, You've got this interesting situation where where the president has uh, had very cordial uh, communications with Kim Jong Un, uh, Chairman Kim, uh, but at the same time uh, we've had a, a maximum pressure campaign uh, on North Korea to uh, 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 let the North Koreans know that we're very serious about our concern with their with their ballistic missile program and their nuclear program. So so we'll keep that up. Uh, again, I'm hopeful that after the election, uh, once the North Koreans realize that. There is no other option uh, that that we'll have a chance to negotiate, but they, they, look th- this has been a problem that that's bedeviled you know every administration since you know I've been in and out of government whether it was the Clinton administration or the uh, the, the Bush administration the Obama administration currently our administration. I think that the president has re- has achieved results that no one thought he could be, because we've had the toughest sanctions in history on North Korea that are being enforced uh, and at the same time he's developed a a, a channel of communications with with the the North Korean leader. Uh, I, I just had my my South Korean counterpart uh, uh, here last week, and uh, Director Sa. And you know, I think they're happy with. I, I think the South Koreans are happy with where we are. Uh, but we'd really like to see some progress. There, you know, there there may be an opportunity next year if. And, and I, I think we're all hoping that with COVID uh, potentially abating next year. We can have the the Olympics in in Tokyo, and I think the North Koreans uh, are interested in participating in the Olympics in Tokyo. There there might be a season uh, either before or during or after the Olympics where the uh, the parties could come together and uh, and have some negotiations that 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 led to some prosperity and, and 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 better economic times for the North Korean people the people of the DPRK, uh, and also led to some arms reduction and some initial steps towards denuclearization. But it's a, it's a tough problem uh, set, as you know, and we're working it hard and, uh, you know, the, and the North Koreans notwithstanding the cordial uh, conversations between the leaders, they're negotiators, or as, as Steve Began has found out, uh, and Alex Wong, uh, they're, they're tough, hard-nosed negotiators and they don't give a lot. So you know, we're, we're engaged in the process and, and we're gonna keep working
3: it. Ambassador, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me, honor to be here, take care.
1: Ambassador Robert O'Brien is National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump. He was a U.S. Representative to the U.N. General Assembly and also led diplomatic efforts on overseas hostage-related matters. Stephen Hadley was National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush. He chairs the United States Institute of Peace and is on the board of the Atlantic Council. Their conversation was held in mid-October. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was programmed by the Aspen Security Forum team, which includes Nick Burns, Anya Manuel, Niamh King, John Hogan, Leah Batunas, Kathleen Shea, Tobias Brandt, and Emily Lawrence. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.
0: This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of Northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.